Good morning. It is great to be with you today. I want to thank you all for your prayers and for your support. Amy and I have had um, a difficult but very good transition, and so many of you have reached out with calls and cards and visits, uh, and we have certainly felt uh, the warmth of this church family. If you are new here today at Old North, uh, I want to give a special welcome to you. We share a special day together. And as you wander around the building, uh, if you could draw a map of it and share it with me, uh, by the time that you leave today, I would very much appreciate that. Well, let me bow one more time before the Lord and ask for his help as we look at the scriptures together. Please pray a short prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we come now before you and we desire to hear from you through your scriptures. And so we pray that you would give us receptive hearts and receptive minds, that your spirit would work in us, encouraging us, convicting us, and changing us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Old North Church is going to change. And for some of us, when we hear that statement, shivers go down our spine. Most of us fear change. We become comfortable with our surroundings, with our habits, with our patterns of life. And change is not particularly palatable to us. This is especially true in local churches, where the common saying tends to be, well, we've always done it that way. Or we've never done it this way before. You maybe have heard the joke, I was reminded of it this week as I was thinking through the concept of change. How many people does it take to change a light bulb in a church? Four. One to change the bulb and three to reminisce about how great the old bulb really was. <laughs> Generally, people fear change. But Old North Church is going to change. And when some of us hear that, we become excited. Perhaps you work in an environment of constant change and life becomes boring to you if it becomes too predictable. After all the old business adages, change or die, maybe you've appreciated the sentiment of Winston Churchill who once said, to improve is to change. To be perfect is to change often. Or the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr who famously penned the phrase, God, grant me serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Very often, change can be exciting. Old North Church is going to change. And when the new pastor stands up on his first day and proclaims this with boldness and confidence, I know that there's a combination of fear and excitement that are met with that statement. But let me clarify what I mean to you. Old North Church is not going to change because a new pastor is here who's going to do things radically different than the pastors before him. But Old North is going to change because you are going to change. Now, undoubtedly, a new senior pastor 
has different strengths and weaknesses than those who have gone before him. And some minor things will change along those lines. But Old North is going to change because you, the people of Old North, are going to change. And that is what our text is all about this morning. So I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 is found on page 983 of that Pew Bible in front of you. And today we start a new series in the book of Colossians called Supremacy. Now, supremacy is a very strong word to communicate the theme of this book. And we'll make that more clear next week and in the following weeks. But today we explore Paul's introductory words and comments to this church in Colossae. Because these people have changed, and they're about to keep changing. And I think this is just about perfect for the season of life that Old North is in today. Are you there? Colossians chapter 1? Let's read it together. Please follow along with me. It says this, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. So after a few opening comments, Paul introducing himself to this church in Colossae. He has probably never been there before, and yet he has heard of them and certain aspects of them from a distance. He goes right into his thanksgiving for what God has done in their midst. And we might characterize it this way. As applied to ourselves, we thank God that he has changed us. The people of Colossae were not always the way that Paul has come to know them to be at the time of this writing. They had changed. Like many of the ancient cities, Colossae was this mixture of philosophies and ideas and different types of teachers that promoted the self. 
But Paul has come to heard of them, come to hear of them from a very far distance across the known world in some senses, and he has come to learn of the ways that they have changed. And he gives her three defining characteristics about these people that he has heard about. He says in verse 4 that we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Again, characteristic number two of the love that you have for all of the saints. And number three, because of the hope that they have laid up for them in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. Defining marks of people who have changed. Faith, love, and hope. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Of course it does. Because again and again throughout the New Testament, we see the defining marks of those who follow God are faith, hope, and love. And we see combinations of these three characteristics displayed all throughout Paul's letters. Here's just a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he writes to a different group of Christians, and he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Philemon, verse 5, Paul writes to Philemon on behalf of his slave Onesimus, and in his introductory comments he says, Because I hear, I hear from a distance of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And who could forget 1 Corinthians chapter 13? In the middle of that section on spiritual gifts, the love chapter of the Bible, the chapter we often rip out of context and place in the middle of our wedding ceremonies, It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. And if we were to quickly take these three things together. We could spend hours, of course, talking about each one, but let's just look at them very quickly together. What is he talking about? What has he heard about these people from a distance? How has God changed them? They have faith. The faith that he's talking about is not some sort of vague notion of faith in God that we often hear about in society. This is a faith in the person of Jesus Christ that you guys have been talking about and singing about and hearing about week in and week out at Old North for years. This faith is referred to as the word of truth in verse 5. It's referred to as the gospel. It's talked about as bearing fruit throughout the whole world in an ever-growing sense. Later in this very chapter, we see in verses 13 and on, that this faith is a faith described in its result as taking people out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, a faith that gives us inheritance or salvation as sons and daughters of God. This faith that we're talking about is the gospel. And fundamentally, when you put your faith in Christ, this faith changes you. 
And it's been a faith worth hearing about for Paul all the way across the known world. Love. Right alongside of faith, of course, is love. It's so interesting to note that the Bible talks about love quite often as a sign of a genuine relationship with God. But it almost never talks about love in the way that we talk about it in our culture today. I think our culture generally tends to be slanted toward thinking of love as some kind of cheapened romantic lust or the desire to get what I want right now in the moment. But we know that love is much deeper than that. It's an ongoing care and concern for the people around you. And in the context of a church, this love is a growing family type of love together, investing in each other, sacrificing for each other. All of these expressions together indicates the familial type of love. And I wonder if you make it a point to display, intentionally display love to the people around you in this church family. Or maybe, or maybe um, you kind of come in and out and keep everybody at an arm's length. To be a local church, one of the greatest benefits is to give and to receive real, substantive expressions of love. I mean, after all, Jesus said, John 13, 35, By this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. I have to say, in my very, very short time here, I've seen a variety of expressions of love, not just toward the Gatsky family, but I hone in and observe the ways that people tend to love each other. And I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged to see a church family that is intentionally engaging in expressions of love to each other. And I want to encourage you to keep going in that. Faith Love and hope. Right alongside of these two is hope. And it's important to note that out of these three that are so often put together, and so often we think of love as being the most important of the three, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, Here, in this text, he makes it a point to single one of them out. But it's not faith and it's not love. Paul makes it a point here to single out hope. He indicates that the reason why these people can have faith and love is because they have hope. Hope serves as the ground for these other characteristics. And it's directly related to the good news of the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I often think of hope in these sort of very superficial types of terms. And I think many of us do. We say things like, oh, I watched the debates the other night, and I really hope that so-and-so becomes the next president of the United States. Or school season is starting very soon, and I hope that little Sally gets Mrs. Johnson as her teacher for her class this year. Or I really hope that justice is served and that Tom Brady is proven innocent from all these baseless claims that the NFL has against him.
But you know, when we really look at our current situation, we live in a time that feels like there isn't many things to hope in. And honestly, I'm not quite sure how people do it when they go through life and they place more substantial hope in the things that they do. I mean, we can't hope in the government. We all know that. Another scandal, another investigation, another bickering Congress. We can't hope in our finances. If the last 10 years have taught us anything, markets can change like that. Financial situations can change. Jobs can be gained and lost. But even if we could hope in financial stability beyond that, we know that money really isn't going to bring us something that's lasting. We can't hope even in the good of humanity. If you've been following the news and the story about Planned Parenthood the last couple of weeks, this nationwide company that has been the leading provider of abortions for the last number of years, decades, that has been found to be buying and selling body parts of babies like they're trading cards. You can't hope in the good of humanity in that sense. And so it's not surprising that so many people try to escape to some sort of realm of fantasy, whether that's through substance abuse or whether that's through an online world of fantasy or even as we see more and more young adults moving from their 20s and into their 30s and even into their 40s that are enraptured in video game fantasy. Because there's not a lot to hope in. Beyond that, beyond those things that rob me of hope, most of all, my own sin and shortcomings and entrapments that I find myself in again and again and again just rob the idea of hope right, from, right out from underneath me. And we ask ourselves the question, when we find ourselves in that low place again, that place of failure again, is there anything better than this? God, I hope there's something better than this. We need something to hope in. And hope changes everything. I think of the story of the self-made millionaire Eugene Lang, who greatly changed the lives of a sixth grade class in East Harlem, New York, some years ago. Mr. Lang had been asked to speak to this class of 59 sixth graders. What could he say to inspire these students, most of whom would drop out of school, most of whom had surroundings and a life circumstance in which they would say, is there anything better than this? He wondered if they would even listen to him. How could he get these predominantly black and Puerto Rican children to even look at him in the classroom? So scrapping his notes, he decided to speak from the heart. And this is what he said. He said, stay in school, and I will help pay for the college tuition of each and every one of you. 
And in an instant, 59 little lives were changed. For the very first time for many of them, they had hope. One student said, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. And nearly 90% of that class went on to graduate high school. Because hope changes everything. And as ones who were hopeless in our sin, when we saw Jesus and we were forgiven of our sins by God, we now have hope. We have hope that God will never leave us nor forsake us. No matter how difficult it gets, we know that his love for us far supersedes the attacks of the evil one because a bruised reed he will not break. We know that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now co-heirs with him in the blessings of God. We have a favored position. We can access the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when we stumble again, when we find ourselves undeserving again, we know that God will not leave us nor forsake us because nothing can separate us from the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Because he who called us is faithful and he will not deny himself. We have hope that because Jesus raised from the dead, that we will as well. And we have hope that in his imminent return, that all economies, governments, human organizations, and families will be set into their proper order. Hope changes everything. And because of hope, in this life, and beyond, we can choose to exercise love toward one another. And we can choose to have an ever-growing faith in the God who gives it. And so for you, Christian, if you're here today and you are a Christian, all of this is evidence of the gospel in your life. And one of the takeaways, one of the reminders that we have is a look back at who you were and how God has changed you. And we thank God that he has changed us. I thank God that he has changed me. He's changed me from a person that cared so much more about the things of this world, about the accumulation of things, about the pursuit of money and status than anything else, to a person now who actively knows and loves and pursues him and has a hope for something much greater than those things. Who were you five years ago? And how have you changed? Ten years ago, think back. What were the defining characteristics of your life? For some of you, 20, 30 years ago, I thank God that he has changed me and has changed you. Paul gives them these words of how God has changed them. And then he moves to a prayer in which he asks God to keep changing them. And this is the prayer that we have 
for Old North. This is the prayer that I lead with today when I say that Old North is going to change. We pray that God will keep changing us. Look with me at verses 9 to 14 in your text. Paul prays for the Corinthians that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to have spiritual knowledge, understanding, perception of what the will of God is for them. Now, the fact that we can even know that the God Almighty, the one and only King of the universe, who sits high above all, who knows all, who sees all, who can do all, the fact that we can even know his will is mind-blowing. And he asks that God would make his will known to them. And truth be told, we would pay any amount of money to know the details of the will of someone of that type of power, wouldn't we? But so often we pursue in our life just more superficial types of knowledge. I was reading an article from the New York Times not long ago called Faking Cultural Literacy. Author Carl Greenfield argues that today's social media lets us pretend to know something about almost everything even if that knowledge is deplorably shallow. He writes, we pick topical, relevant bits from Facebook, Twitter, and email news alerts, and then we regurgitate them. Instead of watching Mad Men or the Super Bowl or the Oscars or the presidential debate, you can simply scroll through someone else's live tweeting of it or read the recaps the next day. And what's really important is becoming determined by whatever gets the most clicks. An example of our superficiality, Greenfield mentions the recent survey by the API that revealed that nearly 6 in 10 Americans uh, acknowledge that they do nothing more than read news headlines, but rarely ever read the stories. He said, we feel this constant pressure to know enough at all times, lest we be revealed as culturally illiterate. So we survive in an elevator pitch, a business meeting, a visit to the often kitchenette so that we can post, tweet, chat, comment, text as if we have seen, read, or watched, or listened. What matters to us most, a wash in information, is not necessarily having actually consumed this content, but simply knowing that it exists and having a position on it, and being able to engage in the chatter about it. So if you apply this sort of cultural dynamic to our topic for the day, let's just ask the plain out question. Would you rather know that God's will exists out there somewhere? Or would you rather know what his will actually is? The answer is obvious. We would want the latter. We want to know 
what his will actually is. And we can, as he continues to show it to us. Now, if wisdom is the right application of knowledge, then what sort of wisdom does God want us to have in knowing this will and this type of knowledge? Look with me at verse 10. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will so as, or with a result, that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. God wants you to know his will so you can live a life that's pleasing to him. How? What is a life that's pleasing to him? Verses 10 to 12, he says, bearing fruit in good works. Not that your good works are meritorious or saving for you, but they are the natural consequence of you knowing a God and loving him and wanting to do what is pleasing to him. Increasing in the knowledge of God himself. Not that you would just know what God wants you to do, but that you would come to a greater and deeper understanding of the person of God himself. That another element of this is that you would be strengthened so that you may patiently endure the difficulty that comes ahead of you in this life. And it's important to note that that type of strengthening is one of supernatural focus. It's by his glorious might, the text says. And we do it with a disposition of thanksgiving. So God wants you to know his will so that you would grow in a life that's pleasing to him and that you would not only be changed, but that you would be ever-changing. From the moment you put your faith in Christ until your dying day, we call this process sanctification. God is making you, each and every one of you who have faith in Jesus, more holy. And when you think back on this process in your life, and you say, five years ago I struggled in this way, and 10 years ago I struggled in this way, and 20 years ago I struggled in that way, And as you begin to look on the slow, steady process of God refining you, of giving you an increased knowledge of him, of giving you more victory over sin than you had before, you say, God, please keep changing me. I am not perfect yet. And he promises that he will. And that is incredible to think about. Old North Church is going to change. Because you are going to change. And in fact, if you put your faith in Jesus, you've already changed. And God will keep changing you and changing this community. Because that's what God does. That's the point of Colossians, this first part of Colossians chapter 1, is that we thank God for the change that he has done in our lives, and we pray that he will continue to change us through the gospel. And so in response, be thankful. Feel the gratitude and the difference of the person you used to be compared to the person that you are now. Be mindful of the things that God would have you to do to adjust 
the posture he would have you to take and be willing to work toward those ends. Because today, really, in a lot of ways, marks the beginning of a new season for the life of our church. I don't have to call it your church anymore. Our church. I wonder if at the beginning of a new season you're willing to make some adjustments to how you go about your life. I want to encourage you to make some adjustments. I don't know what they are for you, between you and the Lord in some ways. If you need help, ask the people close to you who are faithfully following Jesus. It's one of the ways that we work together in this. One of the ways I think we can grow to know God better and to know his will is by doing what Marty talked about this morning in the Gospel Project, to study the word in the context of community. So I want to encourage you, if you are used to being here for one hour on Sunday mornings, consider being here for two. Consider being here in the context of small groups or Sunday school classes, studying God's word together, getting to know him better and seeing how he might change you. Consider ways you might serve him how you might step out and be used. Be a willing participant. Ask God to continue to change your life in these types of ways. And indeed, he will. Let me close with this thought. What does change look like? Author J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. He did not initially set out to write fantasy novels and create an entire world that he called Middle-earth. He first ventured into his brilliant writing career when he read the phrase Middle-earth in an old English manuscript, and it inspired a poem. That was 1914, and he was 22 years old. Three years later, in 1917, he wrote... The Fall of Gondolin, which was the first story of his fantasy works. Then 13 years later, in 1930, he began telling his children a bedtime story about a strange and funny character called a hobbit. Seven years later, his book entitled The Hobbit was published. The publisher immediately asked Tolkien for a sequel, and 12 years later... In 1949, he completed the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The trilogy was published five years later, in 1954. In other words, from the time that Tolkien first saw the phrase Middle Earth to the time that his masterpiece about Middle Earth was published, it took Tolkien 40 years of creative effort. What does change look like in the life of a Christian? Is it instantaneous? Is it radical? Is it aggressive? Sometimes, yeah. But if it hasn't been for you, then don't be discouraged. Because most often, for the Christian, the change that God does is slow and steady. It's met with a willing and humble and an open disposition in this life, 
a life that's being defined by faith and hope and love, a life that's growing in a knowledge of the will of God and a knowledge of the person of God himself, a life that you look back at five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and you say, I thank God that I'm not the same person I was back then. And I thank God that he's continuing to do this type of change in me. And that, my friends, is change that we can truly celebrate in the long haul. Let's pray together. And as we start a new season in the life of our church, may God find us to be people who are open and willing and humble to the type of change he wants to do in us. Heavenly Father, we have great amounts of thanksgiving for your work in our midst. And we have anticipation for what you will do. God, we plead with you. Please change us. Please help us to know your will. You reveal it to us in the scriptures and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please give us courage to change or adjust in this work that you're doing among us. God, please help us to be people who are willing to do things that we maybe never would have done before or to give up things that we've been holding on for way too long. God, be glorified in this church, we pray, as you continue to change her in the weeks and months and years ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.